you know, the hardest thing for an athlete would be to get to the Olympics and then not be able to race. Mesdames et messieurs, the greatest festival of our contemporary society, the Olympic Games, is about to begin. This is going to be close. Hello and welcome to Keep the Flame Alive, a podcast for Olympics fans. I am your host, Jill Jarris, joined as always by my lovely co-host, Allison Brown. Allison, hello. How are you today? I was a little unsettled there for a second. <laughs> oh, it's very weird to say. <laughs> I forgot the new name of our show. <laughs> yes, we have been. If you are a fan of Olympic Fever and suddenly in your podcast feeds saw this new Keep the Flame Alive, hey, that's what happened. We had to change our name thanks to... Uh, discussion with the U.S. Olympic and Paralympic Committee, uh, which happened after we wanted to earn some money to defray the costs of this show. But we've been rule 40 That's right. We, we have. But I like it. I like how it sounds. I like how it looks. I'm. Thank you, Megan Grammer, for our lovely new logo. So I do have a funny story about the logo that I'll tell very quickly. So my sister texted me and she said, why'd you change the name? And I texted her back oh the whole story and then she said did they tell you you had to change your colors too <laughs> and I said no we thought you know the the as opposed to the blue and the greens the reds and the oranges had a flame effect you know sort of so but I loved the idea that they came and said and another thing <laughs> change those colors yeah, we're getting uh, used to a lot of new stuff with the show. There are a lot of details. I'm still working on our new website, so hopefully we will have that up soon. All of our social media handles have been changed to Flame Alive Pod, so please find us there. We basically had to delete all of our old accounts to get rid of the Olympic Fever moniker, so we are kind of starting from scratch and having to rebuild the show. Luckily, we were able to keep our subscriber base for those of you who do subscribe in a podcast app or on iTunes. So that is helpful, but the rest of it is uh, we're doing that uphill climb again. And it being a suddenly a non-Olympic year, it's a little more difficult. So any help you can provide in helping us get our name out there or following us online, we would appreciate it. We uh, still have our Facebook group. It's the same that didn't change much well the name changed so it's keep the flame alive podcast group on facebook and we're still uh, going full strength there talking yeah we were able to move everybody across so everyone should have stuck around who had been subscribed to the facebook group before and you can tell us how much you love our new colors yes <laughs> We are back with interviews and looking at sports. So today we are entering the water and learning more about the sport of canoe slalom. Our guest today is New Zealand canoe slalom athlete Luca Jones. Luca competed in kayak at Beijing 2008. She was at London 2012 and Rio 2016 where she won a silver medal. She also earned a bronze medal at the 2019 World Champs. As a member of Team New Zealand, she's known as one of the Silver Ferns and has earned the fern to compete at Tokyo 2020. Luca talked with us on March 23, which was the day before the IOC postponed the Tokyo Olympics. And she told us about the ins and outs of the sport. Take a listen. So I not watched a lot of canoe. 
Uh-huh. I've watched a little. I have been in a kayak a couple of times. <laughs> so my knowledge is very limited. Where should we start in terms of just talking about what canoe is all about? Yeah, well, I'll just describe basically what, what the competition is to start with. So canoe slalom is basically, I think, a water version of ski slalom. So you start, um, you go from the top to the bottom in the fastest time possible, but on the way you have to go through poles. And on on the white water course, we have green and red poles. So you have to navigate the green poles in a downstream position and the red ones in an upstream position. Um, and also, unlike um, ski slalom, if you touch one of these gates, then you incur a two-second penalty. And if you miss one altogether, then you get a 50-second penalty. So our race is about 100 seconds. So as you can imagine, uh, missing a gate is basically your race is over. Touching one can have a huge impact as well on your time and position. I would imagine it's pretty I would say easy to miss a gate, but you're a pro at this. But is there sometimes where the water, the current is just right and you're like, oh, I can't get there? Or just do you muscle it out as much as possible to make sure you get that gate? Yeah, I mean, there's so much time gain and lost on the white water course. And one of the key things actually is that you're not allowed to. So you've got the white water rapid itself and a lot of them are artificial these days. And then you've got the gate sequences. And the gate sequence that is set for the race, once it's set, you're not allowed to train on it. So the first time we paddle through those gates is on competition day. So you have to do a lot of visualization and you spend a lot of time looking at where the gates are and what the white water is doing around the poles. So you can kind of get a sense of, you know, maybe this gate is quite tricky because the white water is surging a little bit and I need to make sure I give it some space. Other gates, you know, you can come in really tight and it is difficult because we're working on, on really tiny margins to get as much time as possible during the race. But obviously the consequences are really high. So you have to be really reactive and yeah, sometimes, you know, the, the penalties are really unfortunate and, <laughs> and, and can't really be helped sometimes. So going later in the start list would be an uh -huh. advantage. Yeah. Cause you can see what the other racers have done. So how do they, is it random say in the finals or is it whoever finished best in the preliminaries? Yeah. So um, it's reverse seed in the final for, the placings in the semi-final. So, yeah, if you win the semi-final, you go off last in the final. In each round qualification, semi-finals, finals, it's obviously great to go off, you know, as, as close to the end as possible. So you can watch the other paddlers and get a sense of, you know, what moves are more difficult than others. Or even sometimes there are different ways of doing the gates. Some options are safer and maybe a bit slower. Others are more risky, but you can get time from it. And sometimes it's really difficult to assess which option is better to take. Um, so it's good to watch some of the faster competitors before you um, to get a sense of what options are the best. What constitutes going through a gate legally? Um, so your whole head has to go through it and part of your boat, um, oh, okay. which Sometimes your boat's actually quite underwater, so it's hard to tell, but definitely your whole head. So basically, like if the gate line is just above your chin, 
that means you get a 50 second penalty. So like the margins are just so fine. So you can kind of lean a little bit to get yourself around. Yeah, you use your body a lot to like sink the tail on the kayak and yeah, you can kind of lean into the gates a little bit. Yeah, to make sure you do get your head in. But you don't want to lean so far because we know what that happens. <laughs> you don't want to eskimo roll because that's a, a huge time loss. <laughs> okay, I love that term because I don't know if that's a – because I've always heard them as barrel rolls. Oh, yeah. Is this just a canoe thing that they say eskimo roll or is this a New Zealand thing? I don't know. I think I, that's what I'm just growing up with, I think. Yeah, I don't know where the term came from. I think it, it was um, – the native people who invented that motion, maybe. One question I had also based on the last thing, do they reset the course from like between the semifinals and the final heats and the opening heats? Uh, only between the qualifications and the semifinals. So the semifinals and finals course is the same. Are they much different when you start looking at them or, or not? Terrible? Yeah, often they'll change every gate. Um, oh, wow. Yeah, so the the way it works is uh, at the Olympics, the the numbers and the format is slightly different, but um, in international competitions, you have everyone races um, the qualifications first run, and then if you're not in the top 20 or top 30 for the K1 men, then you have to race again to make up the final um, 10 places going into the semifinal. So for the women, 30 people go into the semifinal, first runs top 20 go through and then everyone else has to race again to try and make it into that final 10 spots for the semi-final and then the semi-final cuts from 30 down to 10 and so then the yeah. final is one and done it's one yeah run. the final is just one run um all out <laughs> so if i'm watching a run obviously someone going faster than the person before is better mm -hmm. but what else can we look for um what are some of the technical things Often the fastest people in canoe slalom look really smooth and almost effortless. Like sometimes you might look at two people and someone is, is just really like going hard and you can see it in their face and they're just, well, we kind of call it hacking, you know, when they're just pulling their paddle through the water without much finesse. Sometimes that can look fast just if you're looking at the stroke rate and that sort of thing um, but really the fastest paddlers they're taking the most efficient lines really using the white water to get as much speed as possible and yeah they're never having to really fight for things they're just online the whole way down the course and it looks really nice I know when we talk to rowers they talk mm. about the swing it sounds like it's yeah. similar yeah definitely yeah you're kind of you're flowing down the course so when you go down those rapids, what do you do, like on a big hill type thing, how do you manage the boat? So our boats are three and a half meters long and weigh only nine kilos. So they're, you know, even though they're long, they're really easy to throw about. Um, and inside the boat, which you can't see, your legs are really locked in under these thigh braces and your feet are on foot pegs. So you're really like, like, if one of you tried to get in a swallow boat, I think you'd really struggle just to kind of contort your legs into the position that's kind of necessary to be so kind of locked in the kayak. So, yeah, basically we're using our legs a lot 
um, to control the edges using our core and obviously using the paddle to be able to turn the boat and get around the poles. Now, are there any weight restrictions in terms of you and the boat can only weigh so much? No, just restrictions on the boat. So it's not allowed to weigh less than nine kilos. But most paddlers actually are not that heavy because I guess a slalom kite can only be so big. Um, So you don't get many like really big guys doing canoe slalom or or really big girls. Um, Everyone's kind of pretty medium build. And then like what kind of workouts do you do? What do you do to get your core strong? What do you do to paddle strong? I guess it's, you know, the sport's evolving. I guess the slalom as a race has become a lot shorter. So back in the day, they did a lot of, you know, aerobic conditioning and long paddles and that sort of thing. Now the sport's evolved that most of the training is done on whitewater courses. So here in Auckland, we've got like an Olympic standard whitewater course that we train on every day. And basically we do a a mix between kind of more physical oriented sessions and and technical sessions but I guess in some sports when you say we're doing a technique session you kind of think of you know like breaking something down and it's a really kind of easy session and you're just focusing on drills and that sort of thing but in slalom when we do a technique session we're doing you know maybe short sequences of slalom gates but it's always at really high speed usually, you know, like you just can't do anything easy on the white water. The forces are really high and just the simple act of turning your boat and trying to accelerate out of the upstream gates, it's really physical. So as an athlete, we have to be really powerful and you get a lot of gains on the water from a strength point of view and also from a core point of view, but we also supplement it off the water with gym sessions and supplementary core sessions. Yes, I think bench pull and chin-ups are, are the real bread and butter of um, gym sessions for canoe slalom athletes. How, how many chin-ups can you do? Um, I more do weighted chin-ups these days. I think my record is maybe 27 chin-ups in a row, but yeah, I've done 42 kilos for a chin-up, for a single lift. Wow. Um, you want to know what my chin-up record is? <laughs> yes. <laughs> Zero. <laughs> Same here. <laughs> I think maybe in st- if everyone's in staff isolation, I think yeah. chin-ups could be the new big challenge. <laughs> so when you're on the course, how much is you paddling versus the water helping you move? I don't know if that's... Obviously, like the water's flowing downstream and you're going with it. So I guess you could float, but yeah, you're pulling the whole time. Um, Something that you'll see athletes do is maybe like pause sometimes and just to ensure that you're getting the right stroke at the right time. You know, you might need to lift the front of your kayak over, you know, a certain feature on the white water. Otherwise, if your timing's out, you might just plow into, you know, a, a big hole or stopper on the white water and it just slows you down, stops your speed, and then you have to restart. So it takes time and energy. So it's really important to always be paddling, but you also need to be patient sometimes, slow down the boat so that you can let the white water kind of affect your boat to get to where you want to go. So sometimes, you know, you might be going 
from the left side of the river to the right side of the river. And to do that, you you have to use a feature on the whitewater to do that. Yeah, it's it's goodness, while it's like really complicated, it seems to explain, but really the easiest way to get your head around it is to watch videos of it and you can kind of see then, you know, what the athletes are doing and and what the sport looks like. <laughs> so I assume like in skiing, different skiers, you know, some people will be hot doggers, some people will be more conservative. What are some of the differences between different slalom athletes? Yeah, it is the same in slalom. Some athletes can be really fast, but are less consistent because they're always taking risks and sometimes they don't pay off and they'll end up you know, incurring penalties or just losing time because they're not being patient. Then there are other paddlers, you know, who are just incredibly smooth and just are really good at running the boat and making things look effortless. Then you've got people who have kind of like their own style or technique on the whitewater and do things that are really unique to them. Yeah, so there is is quite a difference between each paddler. And it's interesting, you know, like, you have the paddlers who are really strong and they just kind of grunt their way through the the race or the slalom gates and they are actually fast but there seems to be a trend that everyone wants to emulate the smooth paddlers who have kind of style and finesse and maybe they're not the fastest all the time but that seems to be what everyone aspires to paddle like how loud is it on the water Yes. Pretty loud. Like, yeah, if you're, if you're across the other side of the river, you have to shout at your coach to, <laughs> to be heard. Can, can you um, hear people cheering for you? Yeah, you can actually. And often you hear the commentary and everything. Some runs, you know, you'll be really like in the zone and you can't, you don't notice anything else. Other times you're hearing the commentator talk about you the whole way down. (laughs) (laughs) And sometimes they're not always saying things you agree with. (laughs) I would think that would be a little distracting. Just be like, oh, Luca's having a little trouble. And you're like, no, I'm not. I'm not. It's fine. (laughs) I'm doing fine. (laughs) You want to answer that? Then he realizes, oh, wait, I'm in the middle of a race. Yeah. One other question I had was, what makes a course an Olympic standard course? It's usually a course that's fairly consistent. You know, the whitewater doesn't surge very much. And a lot of the Olympic standard courses now actually are are artificial. So they build a concrete channel, put in things that look like Lego blocks to kind of decide which way the water will flow and what features the course will have. And yeah, basically it's something with enough gradient that it's big and enough features that you can use. So if you had a, I guess, a course that just flowed the whole way down without any of the white stuff that makes the rapids look big and exciting, yeah, that wouldn't be as an effective slalom course. Now, are you training on an artificial course? Yeah. Yeah. Do you prefer then competing on an artificial course because that's more what you're used to? Yeah, definitely. I mean, on a real river, it's beautiful and you're out in nature. And I guess that's where the sport originated. But at the same time, you know, river levels can rise, rocks can move. So, you know, you might be holding a race and the river surges or something happens. 
and it's just not consistent. So on these artificial whitewater courses, you know, the one in Auckland, it's great, but it's right next to a motorway. So you're sitting in the start pool looking at people stuck in traffic and it's not really got the same sort of spiritual feel as being out on a real river. But it's consistent and it's great and it's actually really difficult um, to paddle there every day. We get a lot of strength gains just from being on the water just because it's the gradient's really high and it's just, yeah, it's a physical place. Well, you're doing a public service because those people stuck in traffic probably love being able to watch you every day. I hope so. (laughs) Just advertising the sport. (laughs) Well, speaking of that, what do you think is missing in terms of advertising your sport or covering your sport? To be honest, I think we just need a bit of an overhaul and in terms of just how our sport is marketed and how it's filmed and how our races are produced. Yeah, I think we need someone with a marketing degree just to come in and, and spice things up a bit. You know, I think we've had people um, who have been in the sport for a, a long time at the high level in administration and they do a great job but we just need a bit of an overhaul really because slalom is a really exciting sport and, you know, it's got a good mix of being physical, but also having a lot of action. And yeah, I just, I just think there's a lot of opportunity that's not being tapped into at the moment. And it's the same, like in mountain biking, I think they had the same thing quite a few years ago, downhill mountain biking. When someone just came in and kind of gave the sport a bit of an overhaul, and re kind of packaged it and obviously like downhill mountain biking today it's it's huge because this has got kind of x game generation written all over it yeah definitely have you been on the course at tokyo yeah i have we had two training camps there at the end of last year and it was great you know the gradient wasn't as um steep as some other courses but it's a fantastic venue. It's next to the sea. Um, I think they'll get a lot of tourism after the games once it's it's finished being used for competition. And, yeah, I really enjoyed it. Okay, should we talk Olympics now? Sure, yeah. Okay, so <laughs> 2008 was your first Olympics. Mm-hmm. You were a baby. How long had you been, I don't know what you call it. You don't call it rowing, but what? how do you? Paddling. Paddling, okay. Uh-huh. How long had you been paddling in, by 2008? I guess probably paddling slalom for about five years. Okay. Yeah. Not not that long. And there you not are. Not that long. How yeah. overwhelming was Beijing for you? Yeah, incredibly overwhelming. I mean, I didn't even expect to qualify really. And I always tell people that I accidentally qualified for Beijing because that that to me is is how it felt. But suddenly there I was like on the biggest sporting stage in the world as a 19 year old and yeah it was completely overwhelming and I'd never been really in like a high performance sporting environment like I would canoe slalom in New Zealand at the time was really small and each year basically like our senior team would just save up as much money as possible go overseas to Europe um, and travel around in vans you know sleeping on people's couches just going to all the races and trying to train as much as possible but yeah, it was it was a very different scene back then. So just to be in Beijing and surrounded by so many kind of high-level athletes, it was very inspiring. And you were the first 
Team New Zealand athlete for slalom. Yeah, first. Is that right? Yeah. Did that have any meaning to you at the time? Like, did you realize that at the time? Or is that only later? You're like, oh, wow, I sort of moved (laughs) the sport ahead. Yeah, I don't think I I did really register at the time. But now looking back, like, it's a huge step for our sport. Yeah. What was Beijing itself like? Did Did you go to the opening ceremony? Yeah, I did. I I just partook in everything um, the Olympics had to offer. And, yeah, it was just such a, an amazing experience. You know, you hear all these stories of, like, the food hall and all of the amazing things that you can do and just even seeing all of the different athletes from around the world. And I remember getting my photo with Rafael Nadal. And, yeah, it was just, yeah, I think I, I really did experience Beijing. So then four years later, we get to London had a little bit yeah. of a problem training for London. Uh, leading up to it. Yeah, so there was an accident. It, <laughs> yeah. I know, I, you probably hate talking about this, but we're going to talk about <laughs> it a little, a little bit. Um, what happened? Yeah, I was just training one day and had, I guess, like I was doing short sections on the whitewater course and just, I kind of chilled out for a moment Um I'd kind of finished, but I was still obviously in the rapids and I was just paddling into an eddy and I flipped. And just the next minute I was pinned against um, some of the plastic blocks. And for a second, I I couldn't actually get off. And I was just, it's in those moments you really appreciate the force of white water. And yeah, I kind of got crushed against these blocks and then got ripped out of my kayak and yeah, I was kind of floundering around in the bottom of the course and ended up like injuring my rib a little bit as well. But you were you were pretty lucky in terms of what could have happened. You weren't seriously hurt. You could still compete. To yeah. me, the best part of the story was that another paddler sort of fished you out of the water. <laughs> yeah. How did that work exactly? I, I didn't quite get it when I was reading the story. Um, well, in Salem, we like on the white water, we train with other countries a lot of the time. You know, it might be like in this hour, Great Britain, New Zealand, Canada are all training at the same time. So she was on the water and actually she's been a friend of mine for a long time. And it was nice to see a familiar face and to have her kind of paddle me to the side. And <laughs> I had my ugly crying face on. And yeah, I think. It was a nice moment. And that's one of the things I love about our sport actually is, you know, we're all competitors on the water, but we're also friends off the water. And I think we kind of keep our rivalries to ourselves and it's a really social sport. And I, it's one of the things I, I love the most about it. Did you ever consider not racing for, for London after that? Um, no, nah, I would have just, you know, strapped myself up and taken some painkillers and got on with it, I think. Yeah, I mean, I was really lucky that I hadn't done any damage because I think, you know, the hardest thing for an athlete would be to get to the Olympics and then not be able to race. So London was a much better result for you than Beijing. You qualified for the semis. And uh-huh. one thing that helped was that you got funding, which helped you get a coach. What was that? How did coaching help you? Um, I mean, coaching is just a huge part of our sport Um, because it's so technical. You've just got that person on the bank, riverbank every day, just giving you feedback on how you could 
come in with a bit more angle or do this stroke. You know, it, it's really coach-intensive sport. So in 2011, um, I got a little bit of funding to be able to do some work with a coach from the UK. And between Beijing and London, actually, I I joined an academy of sport at a um, like a local school in, in Rotorua, and I was able to get some more sports science support and have a proper gym program. And I was living with other athletes and kind of learning from them. So, yeah, I had made quite a few big steps. But I think between Beijing and London, I still didn't have the coaching support that's really required in the sport. So how was London as compared to Beijing as an Olympic experience? I loved London just because I think I was just a bit more aware of things. I was a bit older, a bit wiser, and I was obviously a bit better at canoeing as well. So I knew I wasn't in a space to contend for medals, but I knew I could do a lot better than I did in Beijing. But it's hard to do better than well, so it's easy to do better than coming last. <laughs> okay, but here's the thing. You came last at the Olympics. Yes. I mean, come on. I know, and it was funny because, yeah, I got home and my friend said to me, you know, I'm really proud of you for coming last because only one person can come last. <laughs> <laughs> Hey, you still qualified for the OLY after your name. I'm just yeah, exactly. Saying. And it was a it was a life changing thing. But yeah, I just loved London. I thought the event itself was really well organized, and just I guess the city of London kind of transformed. I'd spent a lot of time there training, and everyone was a bit like, oh, you know, how are the Olympics going to affect the city? You know, because obviously some things changed for the the local people um there were some more travel restrictions maybe but during the games it was like everyone came together and you'd catch the tube and everyone would be talking to you know usually when you catch the tube in london everyone's looking down at their phones and it's completely silent but during the games people were actually talking to each other and it was amazing <laughs> Then we move, we move over to Rio, and uh-huh. you got a silver medal, which was yeah. amazing. What was Rio like? How did you feel your performance elevated in the four years between London and Rio? It was like night and day, really. Like after London, I got some more support. Basically, I got supported by High Performance Sport New Zealand. So started working with a nutritionist, a psychologist, physiotherapist, you know, all those people, physiologists, all those people that kind of become part of your sports team that I hadn't really had before. And then I also started working with a guy called Campbell Walsh, who I'd known for a while because I moved to Nottingham when I was 18 to train with the British team. And he was in the team at the time and won a silver medal in Athens and, and was really a top paddler. So he'd just retired actually and was looking for something to do. So I asked him if he'd be keen for a, a short-term project because at the time I only had one year of kind of funding and support. And within that year, I had to kind of prove myself and get good enough results to warrant the investment until Rio and I obviously did that and just every year kept building and I think from coming from not having much support prior to London when I did get supported it was just I 
really took advantage of those opportunities and was so open to just learning as much as possible from everyone. And yeah, I was just really grateful to be in that situation of being able to be a full-time athlete and just dedicate everything to the sport. And yeah, obviously made a huge difference. Now the silver medal was a surprise based on Mm -hmm. where you, your ranking was. What made the difference? What made that race so good for you? Probably a combination of things, like just getting better every day as an athlete within that four years um, and having such good support. But I also did a lot around like my mental game. And I guess, you know, the Olympics is such a huge event and it can be overwhelming. And I thought, you know, maybe I'm not, I don't have time to be the best person physically or technically, um, but where I can win is, you know, being one of the best people mentally on the day. So, you know, we spent 10 weeks in Rio, different training camps leading up to the game. So I knew the course really well. And every training camp, I'd sit on the start line and I'd visualize the crowd and I'd kind of summon those nervous feelings that you might have before an Olympic race and just, yeah, put a lot into um, making sure that on the day when it counted, I could be solid mentally and deliver to my potential which is what I did. It's really interesting to hear how much support matters in what you do as an athlete and what you can achieve as an athlete. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, some athletes are really lucky that they're from a young age, they are supported and they show a lot of promise. But for me, it was almost, it made more of a difference because I knew what it was like not to have the support. (laughs) So how was Rio different than London and Beijing in terms of how the games themselves were run? I guess, yeah, every games is just so different and you can really feel like the home nation's kind of culture and twist on the event. And, you know, Rio was a bit looser than London in terms of kind of just rules and how things operated. But I just had a really soft spot for the city. And I guess having spent so much time there before and not staying in the Olympic Village, staying in areas which were surrounded by slums and on the drive to the course every day, you see people in really kind of compromised situations. And I just, I really got to appreciate kind of the city of Rio and all of the people within it. And I think that made the game special for me is that I just felt this really strong connection yeah, with Brazil and with the people and everyone was just working so hard to kind of pull the games together. And, and I know leading up to it, there was a lot of talk and that venues might not have been, might not be finished on time. And there was the Zika outbreak, um, which seems quite insignificant <laughs> in comparison to the outbreak at the moment. Um, but yeah, I just kind of felt sorry for, Brazil to be putting so much into the games and having these rumors spread but in the end they just they really pulled it off and I think for sure it was my favorite games. I have a question that I meant to ask in the first part how do you travel with your kayak? We actually can get them on some airlines so they're just just short enough and sometimes actually if someone asks you how long they are and they don't have a measuring tape we might be inclined to say that they're only like two meters long (laughs) instead of three and a half. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) But yeah, 
we just have to really choose our airlines. And actually, some companies have invented slalom kayaks that split in half. So, like, I guess essentially a, a two-piece kayak or canoe. To make it which, easier to travel with. Yeah, which gives you a lot more options. That's interesting. I can't, I can't imagine trusting an airline to your canoe <laughs> to just be like, oh, can you handle transporting this most precious piece of equipment for me? Yeah, this is my favorite kayak and it's all carbon fiber and it's really light and fragile. Please, <laughs> please don't oh. drop it off the back of the luggage trolley or drop something how, on it. How many do you have? Oh, at the moment, because <laughs> I do two classes. I do canoe and kayak. I have about nine or 10 boats in total in different locations. I've got one, one boat in Tokyo, a few in Nottingham, and then a few in New Zealand. But you have a favorite. Yes. And where's your favorite? Both of my favorites are in New Zealand at the moment, which is lucky. <laughs> so at least you can train in your favorites. Exactly. Yep. What makes them your favorites? What what features do they have? So when they make a slalom kayak, they make it in two pieces, top and bottom, and then they cut it to size and join it together. And when they're cutting them, they cut them by hand. And so, you know, you'll order a new boat that's the same, that's meant to be the same as your last one. But because everyone is kind of cut to your size and cut by hand, there are discrepancies. So, I don't know, we're really sensitive as well because we're so at one with the boat that if your kayak is, you know, even a couple of millimetres different, um, you can feel it. And sometimes you just you just don't feel like this kayak is responding as well as another one. So how much do the kayaks cost? Um, around 3000 New Zealand dollars. So between three and 4000 New Zealand dollars. And what yeah. does a paddle run you? About 800 New Zealand dollars. I'm not sure okay. what that is in US dollars. We'll, we'll figure that we'll out. Figure out. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but I, okay. I can guarantee it's less than I thought you were going to say. Yeah, but the only thing is we need to have, like, we usually get one new boat a year, depending on how many classes you're doing. So I get at least two boats a year. Last year, I was trialing different models, so I ended up buying, like, six new boats, um, which set me back a bit. But, yeah, compared with, like, a, a bike or something like that, um, it's not too expensive. Do, and then I'm guessing you get a new boat every year because they get banged up pretty easily yeah they do okay and then then do you feel like the dings and stuff while you paddle um yeah and sometimes like you'll sn actually snap the tail of your boat and have to repair it and then it can get a little bit heavier do, do and you, you notice just, that do you glue it together <laughs> <laughs> just a bit of duct tape no oh, okay <laughs> I'm duct tape and WD forty solve all. Yeah, big time. So now okay, we just so, do like a carbon repair. Okay, so I'm I'm still back on. You have some people have multiple homes around the world. You have multiple kayaks around the world. Yeah. Where do you store them? Do they have like kayak storage at different facilities, or do you have friends, or like just a storage unit somewhere? Or? Yeah, I just pay for storage. So in Nottingham, there's a whitewater center and they have boat racks. Oh, okay. I just pay there. And same in Tokyo, we're just storing my boat at a local kayak club. 
I wonder if people come and just touch it. Like, oh, it's Luca's <laughs> boat. Maybe if I touch the boat, I will get some of her magic. They could take it for a pedal and I wouldn't even know. <laughs> There's no speedometer on it. <laughs> yeah. You know if they come back with a ding or extra duct tape. Yeah, I wouldn't know that actually. <laughs> Oh, okay, so I saw a picture of when you qualified for Tokyo. Do mm-hmm. you actually get a silver fern plant from New Zealand when you qualify? Yeah. So it you was earn the, the fern. You I actually earn, earn fern. a fern. Yes. Yeah, it was amazing. It's a really cool idea from the uh, Olympic Committee. Is that the first fern you've gotten, or have you gotten one for every Games? No, it's the first one I've got, so it's extra special. That's but now you got to yeah. keep it alive. Yeah. I know, that's the thing. I'm like, what if it dies? <laughs> what does that mean for my future? Yeah. If I kill my fern. Kill my Olympic dream. <laughs> At the moment, it's looking healthy, though. Okay, so good. We're okay. Good. And I don't think coronavirus affects plants. <laughs> Hopefully not. <laughs> Allison, any other regular questions? No, right. I'm good. So I want Luca, to keep Luca with us forever. Oh, I, I do. Uh, have we <laughs> okay, missed I, anything big, Luca, yeah. about your sport? Uh, I mean, I haven't talked about the different the difference between kayak and canoe because there are two classes. So I feel like I'd be doing injustice to the canoeists if I didn't mention that there are two classes. And basically, kayak, you're sitting with your legs in front and you've got two blades. And canoe, you're kneeling in the boat and you've only got one blade. And then you would know the difference because it's C1 versus K1. If yeah. If it's a single person. Uh-huh. Okay. Why would somebody kneel in a boat and go down that whitewater course? I will That's show my age. <laughs> I was questioning it myself when I first started C1. It's so painful. Basically, like, if, even if you were to kneel on the ground for an hour, you know, you'd just be in so much pain. But shoving your legs into, like, either a foam or carbon outfitting sitting as low as possible and then yeah going down the whitewater course it's it's tough and yeah I find I found it really difficult at the start to take up that category but you did it but I did yeah so it's just come in actually as an Olympic class for women for the first time so after Rio I decided to start training in it and try and get good enough to qualify for Tokyo and be able to race both classes was that qualification both C and K? Because I get confused. Uh, yes. Okay, so you're doing both. So now, to get the C1 class for women, they took away the C2 from men. Was that an issue with in the racing community? Yeah, I think, you know, the hardest thing is we only have a certain number of spots at the Olympics. And, yeah, to bring in one class, C2 had to go. And the hardest thing was that, C2 has been around for so long and it's a really exciting discipline to watch. So for those guys who are obviously, you know, that's their livelihood is training full time in the sport. They suddenly didn't have a job anymore, didn't have a athletic career anymore, which, yeah, it was really hard to watch. And a lot of those people were my friends. On the other hand, I think it's great to have two events for women and two events for men at the Olympics and have it a bit more even. And actually, like, you know, the C1 woman class, it's really thriving at the moment, and it's it's really competitive. Who are some of the top countries? Who's really good at this? So you've actually got 
there are a lot of girls who have been doing it for longer than it has been in Olympic class. So in, um, in the woman, Jessica Fox, she's incredible in both C1 and K1. Anna Satella from Brazil, she's also, yeah, incredible at both. So you've got a mix. You've got some athletes who just target one of those disciplines and then you've got people like Jess and Anna and quite a few of the women in the UK they compete in both classes and are really good. Okay, so since you compete in both, how much is a canoe? Um, same price. Like, same price? So it, yeah. are the paddles at least cheaper because you only have one side? <laughs> Slightly, yeah. <laughs> it's more just like carrying two boats and all the paddles and, like, you know, four paddles, two kayaks, and all of your gear around the world is – it's a lot. You don't have much um, room for just day-to-day clothing. Do, do you just shove the clothes in the kayak and hope for the best? Yeah. Just <laughs> put it all in do, hand luggage. Do, like, when you show up at the airport, what are the looks you get from the, <laughs> the, oh. like, the people behind the counter who are like, oh, gosh, I got to check this? <laughs> They're like, is that a surfboard? <laughs> like, Yep. <laughs> <laughs> it's, but it's more than just the your, your fellow passengers when you're wheeling this trolley through the airport with all these boats and you're trying not to take people out and yeah you get a lot of strange looks because people just don't know what they are airport slalom is another event that you excel at apparently yeah <laughs> do they do they have like a, a like a handy dandy carrying case <laughs> yeah I wouldn't call it handy dandy, but yeah, it does the job. And it hooks onto the trolley actually, so you don't have to carry them. You just kind of wheel them through the the airport, which is nice. Okay, how would you ca- like? Would you just like carry you it put on your one shoulder? on each shoulder? Like, yeah, yeah. they're only eighteen tra- kilos. Yeah, it's a training exercise. I just carry yeah, it. Yeah, for the airport. Fuck. <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes it's harder than a training session, actually. <laughs> when, trying to get when, through those. Do you remember the first time you traveled internationally or, well, traveled with your boats on a plane? And, like, mm-hmm. what was what was that like? Um, I must have been 14. And back then, slalom boats were actually four meters long. So it was even tougher to get them on the aircraft. But, yeah, I guess you just kind of turn up and hope for the best. But I definitely spent a lot of time... Like, I guess back when I didn't have any funding and I just couldn't afford any sort of extra um, oversized charge or excess baggage charge, I'd just be bawling my eyes out at the airplane, like the airline counter trying to get my boats on for free because I couldn't afford to, like, not get them on for free, basically. So, yeah, the the checking counters are always a very special place for me. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> that makes me so sad. This poor little fourteen-year-old girl standing there crying because she can't afford to put her boat on the plane. Yeah, it's tough, but <laughs> it's interesting that the boats keep getting smaller. Are they easier to maneuver in the water? Um, yes, but you might compromise a bit of kind of straight line speed. Not that we go straight that often, but mm-hmm. there's definitely a balance. But I am interested to see how the sport will keep evolving, and maybe we will end up moving to three-meter boats. Yeah, just 
to kind of adapt with travel restrictions. Yeah, because I would imagine people are like, hey, can we maybe get the boat to be a little smaller and we'll make it a lot, life a little easier to tote these things around? Hmm. Yeah, definitely. And I think a three-meter boat would, would be quite exciting. Thank you so much, Luca. Follow Luca on social. She is Luca Jones on Insta and Twitter and Luca Jones Athlete on Facebook. And Luca is spelled L-U-U-K-A. We did the math for you. She talked about, we, we did ask her a lot about how much the boats cost. So she said in New Zealand dollars, they were three to $4,000. So that's about 1800 to $2,500 in the U.S. If you're in Europe, it's 1700 to 2300 euros. In Australia, it's 2800 to $3,800. And if you're in the UK, that's 1,500 to 2,000 pounds. So oh, you really did the math. I didn't, didn't well, you? you know, we have listeners around the world. I don't want to have them have to do the math for themselves. Thanks, Jill. You did the math for, for a couple places. Wow. Nice job. So no, I just think it's interesting. And, and like she said, I mean, hopefully we'll get to talk to cyclists soon. And those bikes are expensive. Bikes are really expensive. So this is cheap comparatively, but you know, when you get, she, she did say, you know, she gets a new canoe like every year. So you got to factor in that cost and they get dinged up. Paddles were $900 New Zealand. So that's 550 for US, 500 for Euro, 850 for Australia and 450 for British pound. Can you imagine if they lost your paddle in transit? <gasps> oh my gosh. No. Cause that's like an extension of yourself. Exactly. That would not be okay. And they wouldn't even have the paddle to hit the person over the head with because <laughs> it would be lost. <laughs> but she could use her fern because when she earned the ferns, she actually earned a plant. Which I loved. I loved that so much. That was so Kiwi. Like somehow that the, the New Zealand Olympic Committee gives you a plant is just the most New Zealand thing I've ever heard. I love it. I think oh. it's fantastic. We did mention that we talked with Luca right before the cancellation of the games. So if you are a bronze level or above donor on Patreon, you'll have access to that audio. Check out patreon.com slash flame alive pod for more information. And thank you so much to all of our donors. I'm getting out the latest rewards this week because I realized it's May. We so appreciate your support, especially during these times of economic uncertainty and your donations definitely help keep our flame alive. So we appreciate that. Now let's move on to our team update. Our team needs a new name. Yes. So let us know what you think. The Facebook group has come up with a bunch of suggestions that we're mulling over, but we will take more because Tofu was really nice. <laughs> and I guess our team Keep the Flame Alive doesn't quite have the same ring. Takafa. That I like. <laughs> yes what would you like to hear allison say in bizarre voices every week <laughs> that's the real question that's the real question okay so what's up with our peoples all right our uh weightlifting ceo phil andrews has taken on a role in the international federation he's been appointed interim iwf deputy director general he and his cat he's been posting a lot of instagram pictures of his cat who has been keeping him company while he's been working at home. So I think the cat also gets a new role in the International Federation. <laughs> like I want him to have a little cat scarf and, you know, monocle. Little 
cat dumbbells. <laughs> yeah, lifting it with its tail. Right. Congratulations, Phil, on that. Part of what he'll do is support the executive board as they search for a permanent director general to serve in Lausanne. Nice. Where they are headquarters. So congratulations to Phil for that honor. Jake Dalton and his biceps have a new YouTube show called A Drink with Jake. Episodes one and two are out now, and we will have a link to that in the show notes. So you can watch his biceps curl as he lifts the drink. <laughs> we are just objectifying him to no end. I know. But he still has them. I mean, that's the thing. I, I watched I some of it and those biceps, that's immediately what I saw was just like, wow, he is keeping those biceps in control. I know. Or out of control. With how <laughs> crazy strong they are. And it's Mother's Day this weekend. So happy Mother's Day to our moms, Megan Duhamel, Kim Rohde, Keegan Randall, Don Harper Nelson, Laura Wilkinson, Chelsea Memel, Marnie McBean, and Team USA mom, Sherry Von Reason. And to our moms. Yeah, that's true. Shout out to our moms, man, because we wouldn't be here without them. Uh, moving on to news from the rest of the Olympic world. There's not, I mean, there's stuff going on with Tokyo 2020, but there's a lot of speculative stuff like, oh, if we can't have the games in 2021, we're just going to scrap them all together. Do we need a vaccine to have the games? Do we not need a vaccine to have the games? All that kind of stuff. So basically Tokyo 2020, the organizing committee is still working on things, obviously trying to get stuff going on while also navigating the world of coronavirus. So we don't really have any news from them, but uh, we will keep an eye on things. The Italian parliament adopted Olympic law. The Olympic law is a document that structures the organization and governance of Milan Cortina 2026, which... It is not a law that says they will not allow me in the country for the Olympics. <laughs> All right. At least, well, Inside the Games didn't report that, but we don't know. <laughs> it could be a footnote. We'll find out. <laughs> you know, they're not going to show up at my door right now, but a few weeks from now, mm -hmm. it could happen. But I, I got to say, it worries me that it's 2020 and this document that is just getting done because I worry that Italy won't be able to get stuff done on time. Relax, have a glass of wine, have some cheese. It's La Dolce Vita. Would you like some espresso with a little Sambuca? See. Si. And then uh, also the IOC is considering having a, a virtual IOC session. This is because before Tokyo, they would have their big regular meeting. That's not happening. So now they're figuring out what to do. So that's a possibility. We'll see what happens with that. I know there's uh, some executive board meetings coming up in a week or so, so we'll keep an eye on that and see what they say there. Meanwhile, T-Bach wrote an open letter about the coronavirus, and it was very long, I thought, and said a lot of, hey, life's going to be different with the virus. Yeah, because usually he's very um, circumspect and not quite so loquacious, shall I say. <laughs> He doesn't do a lot of the flowery verbiage. He keeps it to the point. He's, he's very German that way. And this was kind of all around the mulberry bush. Right. And you really have to look hard at it to see what it's really saying. But he's basically saying, hey, Agenda 2020, look at what's happening with the coronavirus, and maybe we got to cut costs somewhere. 
there's going to be a new new norm or I think even a new 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 norm. Yeah, we'll we'll see because there have been one of the IOC members basically said we need to cut sports. Well, they better not cut surfing before Paris because I am going to Tahiti. There was something released by Paris, I think the the leader of Paris and and forgive me for not knowing this off the top of my head because I didn't put it on the show sheet because I thought it was it didn't really say much but it was him talking about how wonderful and green and sustainable those games were going to be and all I immediately think how sustainable can you really call these games when you've got a couple hundred people over in Tahiti and you've got to shepherd them back and forth well are they going to shepherd them back and forth I guess is really the question are they going to have sort of a virtual opening and closing ceremony out there I don't know, I don't but know. they say, like, they, they keep saying, no, they'll come back. They'll have their, they may have a virtual opening ceremony for them or have them just watch it on TV. But the next week, you know, surfing would be in the first week and then they'd shepherd everyone back to Paris and say, hey, you get to go have your Olympic experience now. Well, I'll find out because I'm going to Tahiti, man. I am using my quarantine time to make my grass skirt and my coconut bra and learn how to mix drinks with umbrellas. You know, remember Tahiti was chosen because it had the French wave? Right. Inside the games, Ali uh, Iveson talked with French surfer uh, Johan Defay, who has given her support to have the surfing competition in Tahiti because the, the wave is magnificent and very special, will be magnificent on screen. This is a quote. On the spot, it will be crazy. The wave is crazy. So how are it's you going to do with crazy waves? Well, I'm going to be sitting there in my coconut bra and my grass skirt drinking a umbrella drink with T-Bock. <laughs> so we will watch the crazy French waves and we will yell, magnifique! <laughs> and the few other French words I learned from Duolingo between now and then. <laughs> T-Bock speaks French. She can teach me a few. Yeah, there you go. who knows what kind of accent I'll come out with then. He'll say, are you from Kazakhstan? <laughs> and I will say, President Tebok, how did you know? Would you like another drink? And he will say, merci. All right. Well, I think maybe it's time to get over to Duolingo and learn a couple more words. And maybe you should learn some Kazakh while you're at it, because <laughs> if they come after you, you need to be able to talk to them to get out. I, I know. I wonder if that's on Duolingo. Well, we shall see. We'll find out. All right. Well, that'll wrap it up for this week. Let us know what we should call our team of guests. Email us at flamealivepod at gmail.com. Call our new voicemail hotline at 208-FLAME-IT. We're Flame Alive Pod on Twitter and Insta and keep the Flame Alive podcast group on Facebook. Thank you so much for listening. And until next time, keep the flame alive. I wouldn't call it handy dandy, but yeah, it does the job. <laughs>